Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you'd open up our hearts and our lives to your voice. And we pray that you would cut through all of the other voices in our culture and that you would speak to us and that you'd make us attentive and that in attending to your voice, that we might follow with trust and obedience and in doing that, we might find life in your name. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I want to begin our discussion this morning by making a statement that I heard a pastor named Andy Stanley make a while back. And it's something that maybe nobody else has told you, but I think once you hear it, you'll agree with me that it's true. And here's a statement. There is a big difference between your standard of living and your quality of life. There is a big difference. There is a world of difference between your standard of living and your quality of life. Now, of course, almost nobody around us thinks this way because we're constantly bombarded with messages that say that if we just had a nicer car or a bigger house or we could go on better vacations or eat out more often, uh, if we had a, a, a larger retirement account, if we just had a little bit higher standard of living, then we would be safe and happy. We would have a quality of life. But you know, if you stop and think about it, you'll realize that there is a world of difference between your standard of living and your quality of life. You know, you can raise your standard of living by going into debt, but it takes discipline to raise your quality of life. Now, I know that it's easy to say this in, you know, kind of our own, uh, uh, kind of a more affluent culture. And certainly there are people in our world today who are dying for lack of bread or clean water or cheap medications. And for them, of course, their standard of living is tied to their quality of life. But I want you to know, you know, I've done a good bit of research on kind of the science of happiness and what everyone says across the board, this is almost indisputable within the research, is what everyone says is that up to a certain point, your standard of living does affect your quality of life. But after, say, a lower middle class to middle class life where all of your basic needs are met, after that, there is no material difference in terms of people's own quality of life, their experience of happiness, of people who have more and more than people who don't. And so we can't confuse these two things, our standard of living and our quality of life, though we are often prone to do so. I'm prone to do so, aren't you? I mean, we're often prone to do this. But you can test this. You know, uh, if you're married or you want to be, let me just ask you this. Would you rather have an awesome marriage or a horrible marriage with an awesome car? (laughs) Now, some of you have tried this. And... (laughs) You have an awesome house and really cool cars, but you don't like to go home. You know, there there is a world of difference between our standard of living and our quality of life. And I think all of us know this by our own experience. You know, there was a time in your life when you, you didn't have a lot, but you were happy. You know, and we have songs that kind of capture this sentiment. You know, Kenny Loggins saying, even though we ain't got money, I'm still in love with you, honey, everything, whatever the rest of it is. And then Sonny and Cher, they say our love won't pay the rent before it's earned our money is always spent, but who cares? Because I got you, babe. I got you, babe. You know, now maybe you're not into uh, Sonny and Cher and who would blame you, but here's... (laughs) Here's Lady Gaga, easily Pastor Anderson's uh, favorite musical artist. (laughs) But her song, Money, Honey, she put it like this. She said, you know, I appreciate the finer things, but it's not what makes me happiest, baby. 
I can do without it, babe. Your loving tender, your tender loves more than I can handle. And of course, what is she saying? She's saying, look, love, which really stands at the very heart of a quality of life, like the experience of loving rich relationships, that is way, way better than all of the finer things that a high standard of living enables. And so these are not just cheesy, cliche lines. They're actually capturing something that I think all of us knows from our experience is true, that your standard of living is not the same thing as your quality of life. Now, let me ask you, if there is a God, and there is, and he loves you, what do you think God is more interested in? Do you think he's more interested in your standard of living or your quality of life? It's a no-brainer, right? He's interested in your quality of life. And no surprise, Jesus says, I have come so that you might have life. If he could sum up the entire reason for his coming, he put it like, I've come so that you might know life and that to the full. Now, incidentally, what we're going to see in our story today, that although Jesus is imminently concerned with our quality of life, of experienced fullness of life, it seems from the story we're looking at today that Jesus doesn't give a squat about our standard of living. Or at least he didn't care so much about this rich guy's standard of living because he tells him to just obliterate it altogether. And, you know, as we look together at this story, I think we're going to find it confronting us with some really important questions. Questions like, would you, would I be willing to lower our standard of living to follow the way of Jesus, which always involves sacrifice and hospitality and living generously? Would we do that in faith that actually lowering our standard of living may enhance our quality of life? We're going to be faced with the question, who is it that we actually trust most for financial advice, for advice on how to live well in this world? Is Jesus really, is he, is he not just your savior, but for, he, for, for you, is Jesus really your Lord, the smartest person who ever walked the face of the planet, who you have apprenticed yourself to in order to learn from? And so these are all questions we are going to explore together. So just real briefly, if you want to leave right now, you can. But after this, the doors will be locked. So here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to dive into the story, kind of walk through it. And then I want to stand back and just make three observations, three things that Jesus teaches us kind of about money and life and ourselves and whatnot. So uh, the story picks up in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 uh, to verse 31. But let's set it in its context. So where we pick up our story, Jesus has just finished blessing some little children. And do you remember what Jesus did on that occasion? You know, some parents brought their kids to Jesus for him to bless them. And we imagine that Jesus was giving a lecture. The disciples were taking copious notes. And meanwhile, the children start crawling around on the ground and rolling in the dirt and being obnoxious. And the disciples start getting frustrated. And they say, Jesus, tell them to take these kids away. And you remember what Jesus did? He took these little children, these helpless, small, weak, vulnerable, dependent children, and he sets them right in our midst. And he says, you want to receive my kingdom? You want to enter into my kingdom? If you want to enter my kingdom, you need to become very small and very needy and very dependent like these children. There will be no autonomous, independent, liberated adults in my kingdom, says Jesus. This is a kingdom with a very, very small door. Now, 
Immediately following this incident, as fate would have it, anything but a weak, vulnerable, needy child approaches Jesus. You know, the different gospel writers tell us different things. Uh, Matthew says he was a ruler. Uh, Luke, that he was young. But they all agree on this. This guy was rich. But although he had all of these riches, he still found himself missing something. You know, he had been climbing the ladder of success, but he felt like he was just one rung short of reaching the top. And so he approaches Jesus in earnest. He falls down and look at what it says in the text, verse 17. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this man has been a success in the world's kingdoms, and now he wants to ensure that he's a success in God's kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand his question. When he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not saying, what do I need to do to make sure that when I die, I'll go to heaven? That's not the way Jews in the first century thought. He's asking, he, he, he believes like other Jews in the first century that the day is coming History is moving onward toward a climactic moment where God will decisively act again. And on that day, God will excise from the world all those who are in darkness and, and doing violence and oppressing and marginalizing God's people and the poor. He will pull them out and he will establish a kingdom of life and joy and justice and righteousness and love. And so what this man is asking is he's saying, when, what can I do to ensure that I can enter into this kingdom when God decisively acts? I want to know this kind of life. Now, Jesus responds in good rabbinic fashion, and he gives the standard answer. Look at what he says in verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he says, you know the commandments. So every good rabbi would answer the question about the kingdom of God, eternal life, by pointing to fidelity, faithfulness to the covenant that God made with his people. Do faithfulness to the covenant. Do the commandments. He says, you know them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Uh, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud your honor and mother. You know, stuff like that. Do that and you will live. Now, I suspect that in giving him the anything but easy to follow Ten Commandments, that perhaps Jesus expected, you know, this, this overachiever to kind of be humbled, you know, and to say something like, gee, when you put it like that, why would I be looking for something else to do when I've been so lousy at doing the things I've been commanded to do? But, you know, this guy, he's a hardcore success. You know, he's a real Enneagram, one overachiever, you know, and he's more of a success than even Jesus thought because look at his response. He says, all of these things I have kept from my youth. What else do I need? Jesus, I'm a moral success. I'm a financial success. Jesus, give me, give me the one, what's the, what's the one last thing I need to do to really kind of assure that I'm in? And what Jesus says next takes our breath away. Verse 21. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. It's just one, just one itty-bitty, litty, wincy, teensy thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Jesus, in this moment, pulls apart this man's standard of living from the quality of life that he seeks. He says, you can have what you deeply long for, that life without the standard of living you think you need. And so Jesus says, sell it all. He says, raffle off the Porsche, liquidate the portfolio, sell the beach house, give it all away to the poor. You know, move down the ladder, nix everything you find your identity in, everything that makes you feel superior and better than all of those lazy people out there. You know, get rid of it all, become very small like a, an, a dependent, needy, helpless child. Didn't I say this was a kingdom with a very, very small door? Says Jesus. Now, what's surprising, I think, in the text is that this command is issued out of love. Notice what it says, and Jesus looking at him loved him. You know, Jesus in our text is not, you know, fulfilling the role of some Occupy Wall Street protester. You know, he's trying to stick it to the man, stick it to the rich. Oh, yeah, rich guy, you want to follow me? Sell everything. How you like them now, you know? He's not, he's not pulling one of those numbers on him. Jesus is not, nor is Jesus doing this out of his love for the poor. Certainly, Jesus loves the poor. Jesus cares about the needs of the poor, but he doesn't tell the man to sell all and give to the poor because he loved the poor. He says because he loved the rich man. Now, how can that be? How can this possibly be a command issued by love? And yet here it is. Jesus looks at him with this penetrating gaze of love. And I can just imagine that perhaps this is the first time in this guy's life that someone ever looked at him and didn't give a rip about what he had made of his life, didn't care about where he worked or the size of his bank account or whether he might uh, let them use their beach house or get them box seats to the Lakers. He looked past the riches and he saw the man. You know, Jesus and his disciples had needs. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, said Jesus. It would have been good to have somebody on the staff team, you know, somebody on the discipleship team with some serious financial means. You know, I've thought that about our own staff before. You know, I'd like somebody to come on the team who's got some, ser- I mean, just got lots and lots of, of money. They can just invest it. But Jesus says, I don't care about your money. Jesus says, I don't want your money. I want you. And I see what, what the, this money, what the standard of living, how it's duped you, how it's deceived you, how it is not meeting your deepest needs. And he says, get rid of it all, and I will give you real life. But of course, the man doesn't hear it as a word of love. Instead, look what it says in the text. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, the text says that he was disheartened. Uh, Literally, in Greek, that could be translated, he was appalled. He was shocked. And who wouldn't be? He's appalled. What? What? Sell every? Are you serious? No. And he hops in the Porsche. He gets real depressed, and he drives home. You know, this is a call story. It's one of the many call stories where Jesus says, follow me. He calls people and they leave everything and they follow him. And so Jesus calls Simon and Andrew 
and they leave their nets and they follow. He calls James and John and they leave their boat and their father and they follow. He calls Matthew, he leaves his tax booth and he follows every time in every case in these call stories. When Jesus issues the call, follow me, they leave and they follow every time in every place except for once, it's here. And let us affluent, well-to-do Americans note well that the reason why he went away sad was because he had great possessions. Well, at this point, the disciples are all asking all kinds of, like, you know, the fire alarms are going off in their head and they're going, what on earth, what is this supposed to mean? And it's happening in your head, isn't it? You should, you'd be like, what, Jesus, what's happening here? Like if somebody came up to you and said, how can I have eternal life? Is this what you would tell them? Not if you've been trained well in a good evangelical church. But here's Jesus. What is he doing? And then Jesus turns from this rich man as he's driving off in his Porsche, and he turns to all of us, his disciples, and he starts talking to us very seriously about possessions, about wealth, about affluence, and about all of that. And I want you to observe three things that Jesus teaches us from this little terribly disorienting, uncomfortable incident. Number one, Jesus teaches us first about the problem of wealth and affluence. Notice what he says, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then his disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier to enter for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. So he says it once, they're, they're, they're amazed. And then he, he says it again, and now it says they are greatly perplexed. And then he gives them this little uh, illustration just to drive the point home. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, many, many, many commentators have, have quizzically, you know, they, they've kind of wrestled over this and they've said, what does this mean? It sounds like he's saying it's impossible. That can't possibly what it, it means. I know all kinds of nice rich people and I'm sure that they're going to be there and um, that can't be what he means. And, and, and so they've come up with, you know, different scenarios, different things that would uh, help us understand this. And, and one commentator supposed that there was actually a little gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. And if you had a big camel and you were traveling a distance and all your bags were on the camel, it would be almost impossible to get your camel through that gate. But if you unloaded all the bags and the camel got down on its hands and knees and it sucked in its bellies and it kind of inched through and it could, it could get through, but it would only be very difficult. Well, it turns out that the whole idea of a needle gate is completely historically bogus. There's no archeological evidence for that whatsoever. I mean, Jesus is giving us a saying, like we have sayings in our own culture, you know, a snowball's chance in hell, you know? That's essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, it, it, he takes the largest animal they knew of, and he takes the smallest opening they can conceive, and he says, try to get that big thing through that little thing, and that's how easy it is to get a rich person into my kingdom to experience life. Do you see why they're amazed and why they're asking questions? They're like, how could this be? You see, for the disciples, wealth was not a problem. For the disciples, wealth and affluence, it wasn't a problem. It was a sign of God's blessing. 
You know, in, in the ancient world, you know, you could be a rich, unethical person, but if you were ethical and you were moral and you were rich, like that was the pinnacle. Like that was the sign that you lived underneath the smile of God. But here Jesus says, no, it's not a sign of God's blessing, or at least not always. And of course, for us, wealth is not a problem, right? I mean, don't, don't you just, I mean, many of us, if we're honest, we just disagree with Jesus on this point. Like wealth is just, it's not a problem. A little more money would be my solution to my problems. Do you ever think that? You do, don't you? If I just had a little bit more in the bank, in savings, then I'd feel more secure about retirement and caring for the parents who are aging. If I just had a little bit more, I could, I could go out a little bit more often on some dates. I could take that vacation. I could cover my kid's college. I could get the second car. If I just had a little bit more, I could finally upgrade this stupid computer that crashed again this week. If I just had a little bit more then, then I would be happy. Then I would have quality of, if just my standard of living could raise a little bit more, then I would have a, a quality of life. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Jesus, I, I think he's actually identifying the problem like this. I think what Jesus is revealing to us in this story is that an unhealthy attachment to, pursuit of, and love for wealth and affluence creates an impenetrable obstacle to entering into God's kingdom. Affluence actually creates a barrier. Like, I, I need this, I want this, I, I, I have a scarcity mindset, there's not gonna be enough, I need to keep it all for myself, and I can't give it away, and there's not gonna be enough. And, and, and he says, this creates an impenetrable obstacle for entering into life in the kingdom. Now, how can that be, though? Well, perhaps one reason is because oftentimes wealth can insulate us. It actually allows us to live insulated lives from the poor. And so you have no relationships with people who are low income. You don't do anything to help people who are low income because you've managed to so insulate your life by virtue of your wealth to keep them out of sight and out of mind. Maybe it's because sometimes wealth allows you to live independent, but the kingdom of God calls us to live interdependent lives in community. And actually, wealth cuts us off from that. Maybe it's just that oftentimes wealth and possessions, it just keeps us so busy, doesn't it? Don't you find like, I mean, you get like, there's money, you want to buy a product, and so what do you do? You pour for hours and hours and hours online examining the product, right? And studying all about the product. And, um, and then once you get the product, you've got to figure out, what am I going to do with my old product? And am I going to list the product on Craigslist? Is it worth it? eBay? Is it? And then you're, you're, you're worried about the products. And then you finally get the product into your house. And I can remember back, you know, um, when my wife and I first got married and we were fixing our house in Seal Beach, um, the most expensive piece of furniture we ever bought was this couch at Room and Board. Some of you know Room and Board. It's a very expensive furniture store in Newport Beach. And I saw this couch and I loved it. I had to have it. I just wanted it. I we still have it in our living room today, 15 years later, so... Maybe it wasn't a bad purchase, but, you know, suddenly when I got that, car, that couch back into my living room, I thought it was going to make the living room look great, but you know what it did? It made it look terrible, because now everything else, like it did, nothing matches, nothing, go, nothing is as good as this couch, and so now you've got to get more stuff, you know, and, and it's just, you're preoccupied, and when you're so busy 
shopping and managing and getting rid of and, and examining and reading all about on Consumer Reports, all about your stuff and your stuff and your stuff. Your, you have very little mental attention left to ask the really important questions in life. Why am I here? And what's it all about anyway? So there's a, there's a lot of things, but, but I, I think what Jesus is even getting, I think what Jesus is, is really like deeply down kind of getting into here is an attachment. To, like I need this stuff in order to be secure and okay. And Jesus wants us preeminently to see that at the very heart, at the very core of you being secure and okay and loved in this world is not how you look and how you present yourself or how large your savings account is. At the heart of all of that is God's love and action for you. And where you find life in the kingdom is where you learn to live into and experience his delight and his love as a free gift in your life. And he is your security and he is your assurance, not the stuff you have and not what you've made of your life and not what you can present to others. But when we're clinging to that stuff, we can actually miss in living into that kind of life. Well, we gotta move on, don't we? So Jesus not only talks to us, though, about the problem of wealth, I want you to see in this text, Jesus also talks to us about the paradox of generosity. Notice, um, after he, notice there's this repetition three times of a single idea that Jesus states to this man. He says, sell, and he says, give, and then he says this. He says, give, and you will have. He says, give your treasure away and you will have treasure. It's as if Jesus is saying, here's a secret. It's a paradox. It's unexpected. The way you ironically, paradoxically begin to actually receive and experience the life I intend for you is when you actually start to let go and to give. And it's here you actually begin to experience life. And it's funny because after he says that to the rich man, you know, the disciples, they're all confused and they're, who can be saved and all this stuff. But Peter, you know, good old Peter, he latched onto that thing about, you know, give and you'll receive treasure. And look what Peter says in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, it's like, I like it says he began to say, he just started to launch into this whole thing with Jesus, Jesus, can we talk to you about everything we've given away? And do you hear the dot, dot, dot? What will we have? What kind of treasure are we going to get? And Jesus answers. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or the gospel who will not, get this, receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now when? It's interesting because when he says to the man, sell and you will have treasure in heaven, I think what many of us hear is, okay, you do this stuff that's hard and makes you miserable now in this life, but when you die, it will all be okay because when you're sitting on a cloud playing a harp, you'll get a crown to wear on your head. <laughs> and we think, I would rather get a new car in this life, thank you very much. I don't need a crown. Who wants a crown? What's that all about? That's not the kind of treasure Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a treasure that comes in our possession now in this life, a new kind of life, 
a different kind of life based on a different set of values that's more connected to deep relationships of love and trust with God and with each other. He says, there's no one who has given away that will not receive a hundredfold now in this life, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And he's honest, he says, with persecutions. You know, it's not gonna be all, you know, lollipops and rainbows. Is it? He says, but in the age to come, you'll have eternal life. But many who will first are, will be last and the last first. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, you can begin to experience life of the age to come right now in community and in life with me and in finding your joy and your significance and your identity in me, not in you know, this game of trying to present yourself on Instagram or you know, by what you wear or by the house you have and by the remodel you just got, not trying to present and present and present. That stuff is exhausting and that's why we're all in Therapy, and that's why we're all taking a bunch of, you know, psychotic medications in our culture oftentimes. It's because we are just really having a difficult time, you know. But Jesus says, here's a different way into a different kind of life. It's a life that comes through your experience of generously giving yourself away and in giving, you begin to receive. Or as the ancient Hebrew proverb puts it, one person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. One freely gives yet gains even more, and another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. Do you realize this teaching is, it it just, it, it colors so much of what Jesus says about money. Ironically, paradoxically, as you give, you begin to receive. And of course, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with the last, over the last um, few months with people about money, you know, uh, more than I ever have in my life, you know. And so um, your appointment is coming soon. I'm just kidding. Um, But, you know, a story that I've heard just again and again and again, and so many of you know this to be true in your own experience. People have said, you know, I I was afraid I I wouldn't have enough and, you know, I I need this and I, I need the standard of living. And what they've discovered was in living into generosity, they never regretted it for a minute because God provided for them in surprising ways, that they experienced joy of actually living generously, like they experience now the, 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 the joy of interdependent relationships. and all. It just says, there's a new kind of life you experience. And I, I have to say, you know, I bear testimony to that same truth in my own life. As I've given money away, you know, I began when I was a, in high school, you know, which is The easiest time to begin, by the way, if you are high school, college, young adult, before you have money, start giving away 10% of your income because it doesn't feel like very much, right? Like some of you, if you felt convicted by the Spirit of God, like I need to start tithing and you make, you know, a six-figure income, that feels hard to get into. But you start young, you know, it's helpful to grow. But, you know, um, I've just experienced like I don't regret the money we've invested in the local church and the mission of God and caring for the poor. There's a lot of other places my money has gone that I completely regret. Anybody here of purchases you regret? 
Like stuff you look back on your, your life and you're like, I agonized over it and I purchased that thing. Why did I do it? I remember, you know, after uh, when Alicia and I were, were still dating, I went out and I bought this car that was like my dream car. It was a 1987 Jeep Grand Wagoneer. It was blue and it had the wood paneling. It was like the ideal surf car. And, you know, I have to say like the two like happiest, most delightful days of my life with that car were the day I bought it and the day I sold it. A year later, I bought the car for $6,800. I spent $4,000 on that car over the course of a year, and then I sold it for $4,000. I thought I could have been driving a, no, I could have been driving like a, a Mercedes, a, a, a Lamborghini for that amount of money over the course of that year. Haven't you had purchases you regret? But you know, when you invest in stuff that matters and it has eternal significance, there's something satisfying about that. There's something satisfying about seeing other people helped and being brought to joy. And like actually, and, and then there's, there's actually a, a unique joy that you find when, when you take a step of faith and you live on less and you, you experience how God provides for you. And, and it's kind of this journey of walking with God by faith. And this is the paradox of generosity. There's no one who gives that will not also receive. Now, finally, let's, let's move to the last thing that Jesus says, and that's the power for change. So I just want to ask you, like, at this point in the sermon, like, as you're kind of, like, exploring with me, like, the teaching of Jesus regarding this stuff, how do you feel about it? Now, I, th- I imagine that some of you might think uh, this is, it, it's, it's the right thing to do, but I'm not sure it's a good thing to do. I'm not actually sure it's going to lead to my own life and my own personal, like, human flourishing. I actually have fear, like, it's the right thing to do, but I'm not sure it's the good thing to do. You know, it's funny. There was a book written uh, this, the last couple of years. I read it over the weekend. It's called The Paradox of Generosity, and it's written by two sociologists at Notre Dame. And do you know their thesis in this book? Like, they, they conducted this massive uh, multi-tier study at the University of Notre Dame. And across the board, they were finding again and again that generosity actually paradoxically leads to a fuller life. They write this. They say, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result not of spending more money on oneself, but rather on giving money away to others. The data examined here show this not only to be a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. When you examine the empirical evidence, the Western formula that more money equals more happiness is simply not true. Now, we didn't need social scientists to prove to us the ancient wisdom of Jesus Christ. But do you, do you believe this? Like, do you actually believe that if you willfully lowered your standard of living, gave more money away? By the way, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not asking you in this sermon to give more money away to the capital campaign. I do want you to do that to, for the record. But Jesus in our text doesn't say give more money to the capital campaign. He says give your money to the poor. Jesus is really talking about a fulsome life of generosity here. Generosity in every sphere of our existence. And I think that we have such a difficult time with this. And of course, maybe you should ask, well, how can I know if, if 
I have, you know, you said an unhealthy attachment. How can I have, how can I tell if I have an unhealthy attachment to my wealth and my standard of living? Well, let me just give you one diagnostic test. Do you want one diagnostic test? You don't. Some of you don't. (laughs) Do you find it difficult to give money away? If you find it really, really hard to give money away, you know, writing those checks, but it's incredibly easy to spend money on clothes. I mean, it's like falling off a log. It's effortless. You know, your, your wardrobe, not Jesus, is your real master. That's kind of like what you're living for. And if you find it difficult to give money away, but it's so easy to spend money on your house and renovating your house and all this stuff, then maybe it's your house where you're really finding your true value and your significance. And, and, and then there's a lot of us that, you know, we, we look at people spending money on houses and on cars and clothes, and you just sneer at them. You, you think, you know, I've had this sweater that I bought at Savers for the last 15 years, and I don't need it. You know, you just kind of sneer at all those self-indulgent, you know, Americans. And you're so proud of yourself that unlike the most self-indulgent, you live well below your means, and you invest, and you've got brokerage, and savings, and securities, and and all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's that that you're looking for to give you control in a very chaotic world. Like, Jesus would say, you will not find control in a chaotic world in that. Like, ultimately, our security and our ultimate trust is in God. Now, maybe you, you would ask right now, well, then who can be saved? <laughs> like, all of us are guilty of having too much of an attachment to, like, material stuff, you know? And this is the question the disciples ask. Well, then who can be, like, Jesus, give a brother some help here? And look at what Jesus says. Verse 27, it's really the punchline of this whole story. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you realize, do you know how powerful God is? God is so powerful that he can even take self-indulgent, affluent Americans who have been avoiding kind of like, uh, you know, caring for people outside of themselves who are living above their means, spending way too much on self. God can take us affluent Americans who find so much of our identity, who are living out of the lie that we'll be safe and happy if we just get more and more and more and it's failing us. Jesus says God is so powerful that he can take us and he can humble us, and he can open up our hands to become poor and needy recipients of the grace and mercy of God, and that grace and mercy can shape us and change us into becoming more and more generous people. You know, on this day, there wasn't one rich young ruler. There was really two. There was one rich young ruler who heard the call, sell everything, and he said, not on your life, and he went away sad. And then there was another rich young ruler, the the true rich young ruler, who though he lived for all of eternity past in the palaces of heaven, as it were, dwelling in the eternal fellowship of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son who owned all of the riches of the world, though he was rich, 
Yet when he heard the call, sell everything so that you might give yourself away for the sake of these poor, broken sinners, break into their world and pull them out of that mess, he said, I'll sell it all. I will make myself poor so that through his poverty, we all might become rich. C.S. Lewis said, now all things are possible. All things are possible. It is even possible to get a camel through the small eye of a needle. That's possible. But it will be extremely hard on the camel. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we sit before you open and vulnerable. And I know full well that like many of my Friends in this room, I will go home to a very, very comfortable life. And you have blessed us so greatly. And we have so much. And you are so good. And we recognize that what has come to us has not come simply because of our ingenuity and our hard work and our delayed gratification, but so much of us, so much of what we have has come to us by sheer gift by circumstances that went well outside of our control, by where we were born, the family we had, all decisions we didn't make for ourselves, by people you surrounded us with, by opportunities you gave us, by, by gifts, by DNA that we have, God. All of this comes from your hand. And so this morning, we open up our hands before you, and we wanna use what we have for your purposes, for your glory. God, lead us and direct us and give us the strength and the courage and grace to be obedient to your call upon our lives to follow your son Jesus in this way of life that ultimately will lead to life in, in its fullness. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.